Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Food within religion is an ongoing discussion I've been having on this show for a while. My conversations about food, notably my conversation on foodways with Dr. Nora Rubel and Dr. Ben Zeller, and my conversation on the ethics of being Buddhist and a chef with Chef Eric Repair, are among my most highly downloaded episodes ever. And that is not surprising to me at all. Food connects and binds human beings together. This episode is about food and focuses on the question, should all Buddhists be vegetarians? Which is a commonly asked question within Buddhist circles today. My guest on this episode is Dr. Jeffrey Barstow, Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at Oregon State University. His research focuses on the history and theory of vegetarianism in Tibet. He is the editor and contributor to the new book, The Faults of Meat, Tibetan Buddhist Writings on Vegetarianism, out now from Wisdom Publications. He is also the author of the academic monograph, Food of Sinful Demons, Meat, Vegetarianism, and the Limits of Buddhism in Tibet, out in 2018 from Columbia University Press. In this episode, we discuss the history of Buddhist writings related to vegetarianism, the Buddha's stance on vegetarianism, the work of translating centuries-old texts, and trends within Buddhist vegetarianism over the centuries. You can follow Dr. Barstow on Twitter and Instagram under the handle at the Lost Yak. You can find me on Twitter at classical underscore ideas or at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation on Tibetan Buddhist vegetarianism and the book The Faults of Meat with Dr. Jeffrey Barstow. to have you here. Can you just spend a moment and introduce yourself however you see fit? Yeah, I am. um, So I'm an assistant professor of religious studies out here in Oregon at Oregon State University. And uh, my research for really the last 10 years has been focused on the history and practice of um, vegetarianism uh, among Tibetan Buddhists. And so that started out as my dissertation. that led into my first book, uh, Monograph, and then uh, also to the book that we're going to be talking about today. Um, so that's really what I do. And it's, yeah, it's always fun to get to talk about this stuff. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation. What is the name of your first book and who put it out, if I may ask? The first book is called Food of Sinful Demons, uh, and it was published by Columbia University Press. Awesome. Okay, cool. Um, so if anybody yeah, likes what we're talking about actually, today. Yeah, I was just going to say that came out uh, at the very end of 2017, um, but it has a, a date of 2018 on it. Fantastic. Um, so I want to travel a little back in time. Uh, what is the story behind why you're interested in Tibetan Buddhism yeah. so much so that you made it a career? Like who inspired you to be involved in this area of study? You know, honestly, so many people, I don't even know where to start. Mm-hmm. Um I was interested in religion, both from, I would say, sort of a curiosity standpoint and also uh, a practitioner standpoint from, you know, honestly, since high school. And so when I went to college, um, you know, I, I was really fortunate and had a couple of really powerful opportunities open up. I was able to do some travel, some study abroad while I was in college and um, yeah, and really ended up. Uh, connecting with members of the Tibetan community, members of the Tibetan Buddhist community. And it just, it was for me, the sort of the perfect blend of really interesting and also really profound. And a lot of stuff that really made me think um, about myself, my life, what I did. And uh, yeah, so as soon as I graduated from college, I actually, 
I went and I moved to Nepal and studied at the Rongjing Yeshe Institute for uh, four years from 2012 to or 2002 to uh, 2006. And yeah, it's kind of all downhill from there. Where did you first encounter Tibetan Buddhism? Was it when you were in high school or like, how did you, what, when did, when is your earliest memory of realizing you were talking about Tibetan Buddhism? It was actually, um, the earliest time I actually encountered it was on a study abroad program in college. And I had not had any exposure to it uh, in high school. Um, certainly not anything, you know, significant beyond, beyond like, oh, maybe I heard the Dalai Lama's name at some point or something like that. Um, but then where I went to college, uh, to a school in Massachusetts called Hampshire College, they had a one-month January study abroad program at um, the uh, Tibetan University in Sarnath in India. And at the time, I was really interested in studying Taoism. Um, but given that interest, this just this was something that I, I just jumped at this opportunity. Um, and yeah, it was obviously pretty transformational. I, I really haven't looked back since then. And that was way back in January of 1999, so, so 20 years. So studying this for so long, um, did you have any chance to do any Tibetan language study or anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. I am. Um, I mean, I I started studying Tibetan. Um, I did a semester of it as an undergrad while on the Antioch program in Bodh Gaya, India. Um, but really, I did most of my Tibetan while I was uh, at the Rongjing Yeshe Institute in Kathmandu. And um, so that my studies there really put me on, um, gave me a real leg up on sort of the academic track once I came back to the U.S., um, because I, when I went into the master's program, I had already done most of my uh, language training and was really able to focus on content. And that has been a real, uh, yeah, just a real uh, benefit and blessing ever since. What do you think are some of the, what were some of the most difficult parts of like the learning process behind studying Tibetan? Because it seems like a language that would be extremely difficult for um, Westerners to study. You know, it's yes and no. I think um, it, it's a really, it's a complicated language. It's totally unfamiliar to uh, most of us, um, but it's also alphabetic. And so I had come to, after, before studying Tibetan, I had uh, studied Chinese for a while. And so then coming from, coming from sort of studying Chinese, I just remember being like, wait, there's an alphabet I can learn. This is wonderful. Um, and so that was uh, that was really great. Um, so I, I think it's it's a mixed thing. I mean, it's definitely not easy, but it's not it's not incredibly difficult either. Um, and I would definitely encourage people who are interested to to, to study it. There are all kinds of wonderful resources these days. Uh, you can take online classes. You can there are multiple universities that teach Tibetan. Um, and particularly for sort of philosophically inclined people like the listeners of your podcast, the the philosophical literature in Tibetan is just so rich and so varied and so interesting that um, and still largely untranslated. So I would really would encourage people to go and and take that take that leap. Very cool. Well, so we're going to talk about your new book, which uh, of which you are the editor and also a contributor. And the book is called The Fault The Faults of Meats. Tibetan Buddhist Writings and Vegetarianism, which is out now from Wisdom Publications. Um, how did you get hooked up with Wisdom Publications for this book as opposed to like an academic press? I really, it was really important to me that this one, um, that this come out with a, um, a popular press. Um, it's the, like the, my first book, uh, Food of Sinful Demons was is an academic monograph, right? It's really it, the target audience is academics. I tried to write in a way, of course, that would be open to other people, and I've, you know, had positive interactions around it with people who are not academics. But really, it, you know, it, it's a it's a it's an academic book. Um, but I also wanted to do something that would really open up this whole question and the resources surrounding this question to the practitioner the you know, sort of the broader community, um, particularly including Buddhist practitioners, but also just sort of people out there in the world who are wondering about or who are sort of dealing with the the question of vegetarianism. Um, 
and in part that's because I think that these the Tibetan voices that show up in this book really have something to say and are saying something that's sort of similar but different, you know, that dovetails with what a lot of contemporary people who are uh, writing about vegetarianism think, but also have some unique perspectives on it. And I wanted to be able to, or to try to bring those perspectives and make them available in a way that, um, that lots of different people could use. Awesome. Well, I so, love yeah. I I love Wisdom Publications. I've featured many of their authors on this show, and it's really a pleasure to add you to the roster of uh, Wisdom folks who've been on here. Um, so you write in your conventions chapter at the very beginning of the book about uh, translation and about how uh, tr- the translation is rendered into English oh. as the faults of meats, and that got right. me thinking about what the title of this book even means. Can you tell me a little about what the title means? Yeah, the, the title is, as you're saying, um, a direct translation of a Tibetan term. Um, the term of Tibetan is shai nyemik, and, and really it means the faults of meat. Um, it's, it's actually a genre of literature, and so uh, it's part of a broader genre, what we would call the, the nyemik, or the faults uh, genre. So we also have um, uh, texts like uh, changi nyemik, which would be like the faults of alcohol, Tamaginemic, uh, the faults of tobacco, and basically what texts in this genre do is talk about why you should not engage or why you should not partake of these substances or whatever the subject of the of the text is. Um, and so, actually, lots of the texts that are featured in this in this book have the faults of meat somewhere in their Tibetan title. Um, it happens often enough that sometimes I had to like have to come up with something else, some other thing to call it, so that all of the books, all of the texts in the um, in the table of contents don't just say the faults of meat by so and so, and the faults of meat by someone else, and the faults of meat by this other person. Um, so it's it also it felt like just sort of the, a natural title for um, for this book because it does show up so much in the literature itself. Awesome. Okay. Well, that's really interesting that it's a genre of literature. And so that kind of leads into a question that I'm also wondering is what sort of works did you compile within the book? Like what eras are we talking about? Yeah. Um, like, tell me about like the range and scope of the pieces that are within this text. Yeah. So my, my overarching goal with this was really to try to present as comprehensive a picture of um, Tibetan writings, meat eating as I could. And so there is a lot of there are a lot of other texts that didn't get included, right? This is a um, it, it, it's not exhaustive by by any measure, um, and I can think of a few you know really interesting ones that didn't make the cut. Um, but really, what I was trying to do was um, go for breadth as well as depth, and so I wanted to get texts that had a sustained engagement with meat, um, you know, that were more than just a few lines or a few paragraphs in in a text on a different topic. Um, but also that presented as many different kinds of arguments and as many different perspectives as possible. Um, so the book actually, if you don't mind me taking a moment to, to just sort of talk about the content. Yeah, of course. It, it, yeah. The first chapter is actually not Tibetan material. It's um, canonical text. It presents translations of two Indian sutras. So two texts, which um, were presented as the word of the Buddha. And I include these primarily because both of them are cited throughout the rest of the, the other texts in the volume. So those are sort of in there as background. But then after that, we start with um, texts. I think our next te- the next text in here is Dolpopa. So we're going you know, quite far back in the history of Tibetan Buddhism, um, 800 years plus back. And then a fairly sort of standard progression or fairly, fairly straightforward timeline up down to the present. Um, I did my best to make sure that we had a representative from all of the major uh, Buddhist schools included, uh, and I, we do. Uh, we have Nyingma, Kagyu, Sakya, Giluk, and Bon all uh, included. Um, I also wanted to make sure that we had uh, it was not sort of too monolithic, and so we uh, included Kedrupje, uh, a Giluk figure, who's really 
the closest thing that we're going to get to um, someone advocating for consuming meat. So at least one of the texts in here, all of the texts, I would say, take nuanced presentations. But one of them, at least, comes down pretty hard on the side of eating, eating meat is okay. And I wanted to make sure that we included that voice in here so that as people read it, as they get a sense for what Tibetan perspectives on vegetarianism are like, um, they're getting as complete a picture as we could present for them. Fantastic. Uh, you involved the help of several translators for the mm -hmm. book as well. And I'm curious about the collaborative process that you went through with um, yeah. getting this work translated. So who did you work with and how was that process? Yeah, I mean, this was, it was actually a really interesting process. This was, um, I sort of, I was, had two projects going kind of simultaneously. Uh, one was a, a journal issue that I edited um, on animals in Tibet that came out about a year ago. Um, and this one, and the editorial process was actually really different I, um, with the two of them. This project really, it, it I, mean, I, I have to really give a, lo a lot of credit to um, the other translators. It was a delight to work with them. Um, and also this was, I mean, I, I feel like I should say that they didn't get paid for this, mm. right? Um, none of them received, the only compensation they get was a couple copies of the book. Um, and so... I really appreciate the time and the effort that they all took to, um, to make this happen. Um, I tried when I reached out to people, I tried to reach out to people, um, who were already engaging with the work of these particular authors. Right. And so, um, people who were already deeply familiar with, uh, Dolpopa's work, right. Uh, with Michael Sheehy or, um, people who were deeply familiar with, uh, Ngorchen Kongazangpo, uh, in the case of York Heimbel, um, Anna Johnson, again, on Kedrup J, uh, all of the people who contributed to this are really, they're, they're experts on these individual people. And it was really, I, I really can't say how much I appreciate their willingness to put in a lot of effort. I mean, this is, um, in some way, th translator's work is kind of a thankless task, right? We, we do the work and it comes out, but it has the author, the original author's name on it. And, um, and I just want to really give uh, all of these people credit for um, the hard work that they did. And honestly, for making my, my job so easy, right? I, it, these things could easily have devolved into uh, conflict and hurt feelings and difficulties, but really everybody was just awesome to work with. I love um, it when that happens, when the whole process yeah. is so seamless and everybody's so positive from beginning to end and it just totally. comes together. That's just rare yep. and we just have to love it when it happens. Yeah, uh, it's, yep. I really, like I said, I appreciate all of these people very much. So before we talk about a few specific um, stories within the book, mm -hmm. I am curious if you can just sort of summarize the Buddha's stance on vegetarianism, because we're going to dive into yeah. Tibetan Buddhism. So what is the, oh, man. so we got to talk about the so, guy, the, the guy himself. This is actually one of the hardest, I mean, this is a, a really hard question to answer. And the truth is, I don't think I can, I don't know that anybody can, um, because part of it is because we have so many competing visions of what the Buddha said, right? So we have texts that, you know, may or may not be actually datable to the Buddha himself, but are presented in the history, in the lineage, and uh, according to, you know, the Buddhist tradition as being authentic words, speech of the Buddha, Um and sometimes we have different perspectives here, and sometimes they are in conflict with each other. The sort of that said, you know, my there's been a couple of different uh, articles written about, you know, did the Buddha himself eat meat? And in all honesty, my guess is that yes, he probably did. Um, the or, there's a rule called threefold purity, which shows up. It's mentioned in all of the different versions of uh, the Vinaya, the rules for monastics. And in that rule, the Buddha says that it's okay to eat meat as long as you haven't seen, heard, or suspected that the meat was the animal was killed specifically for you. That so the basic uh, the upshot of that is as long as the animal was not killed for your sake, it, then according to this rule, it's okay to eat it. Um, 
And that rule shows up in, again, all of the different versions of the Vinaya we have in Chinese, in Pali, in Tibetan. Um, and so I think that there's a good guess that that probably dates to at least a very early period of Buddhism. At the same time, we have other texts. We have um, particularly Mahayana texts like the Lankavatara Sutra and the Mahaparinirvana Sutra, where um, the Buddha, speaking as the Buddha, um, explicitly says that that rule of threefold purity is uh, should no longer be followed, and that now the rule is everyone should be vegetarian. And so, to understand what the Buddha himself said requires sorting through these texts and deciding which ones he actually said and what he didn't actually say. And that is a project that's beyond me. Yeah. Well, and we didn't have this fancy recording software, um, 2,600 years ago, so we can't really understand ever. Um, well, exactly. Perhaps. Although I got to say, I think that the, uh, the early monks did a pretty amazing job of memorization. That's awesome. Uh, And I think they had these technologies, they didn't have like, Quarters, but they had memorization technology. That's pretty impressive in and of itself. Yeah, well, and their and their attention wasn't being uh, drawn to um, the <laughs> the internet and things like that yeah. the, at every yeah. given second of every day. Um, okay, yeah. so let's talk about Tibet. How long have Tibetans yep. in their society been debating the ethics yeah. or the faults of eating meat? How long has this been a conversation in their society? Yeah. I mean. Again, this is it's a hard question to answer because of the question of relevant sources. The Tibetans, I mean, Buddhism was introduced to Tibet first really strongly in the like the seventh, eighth, ninth century. Um, and it's unclear to me if vegetarianism was a practice at that point, if that was part of the discussion or not. It kind of seems like it might not have been, but I'm not certain. Um, but definitely by like the 11th century, the early 11th century, we have um, records of Indian uh, Buddhist masters who have come to Tibet to, to teach. I'm specifically thinking about Atisha, um, who discuss vegetarianism, uh, or at least discuss the question of meat eating. So at least by that point, it seems like this was a live issue that um, was not necessarily settled but was at least something that was discussable and debatable and shows up by the, you know, by the late 11th, early 12th century, we have solid historical records of um, individuals who had become vegetarian. So clearly by that point, it was definitely a thing, right? This was not universal by any measure, um, but there are, excuse me, enough records of individuals that we, I I can feel pretty confident that by the early 12th century, um, vegetarianism was a thing. Okay. Yeah. was a real thing. So now that we have the, like the Buddha's position established and we have sort of like a timeline for when the Tibetans, uh, became interested in the ethics of eating meat, something like jumps out at me. Like when we think of like 11th and 12th centuries, like that does not strike me as an easy, particularly time to be alive. Um, I I feel like if I were living in the 11th or 12th century, that just surviving would sort of be my main priority, which is very, very unlike today where I can go down the street to Burger King and get an impossible Whopper and still be a vegetarian. Um, How did Tibetans get into discussing this issue in a time period in history when people might think they would just be mostly focused on survival? Yeah, I mean, it's a good, it's a really good question. Um, It's also the how and and such, I think the obvious answer is through Buddhism, right? The, um, the people who were, that we have records of who were interested in vegetarianism are coming at it primarily from a Buddhist lens. And one of the things that Buddhism, particularly Mahayana Buddhism really preaches is, uh, compassion. And it's, you know, there's no question that animals are included within the scope of that compassion. And so, you know, people are getting into Buddhism, they're getting excited, they're reading this stuff, they're, some of them are becoming monks, nuns. Um, and it's not difficult, I think, to, um, to then see how people might start to question practices like uh, killing animals for food. Um, that doesn't mean that it was easy for them, right? Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that's really striking about 
vegetarianism in the Tibetan context, particularly in like the pre, you know, the pre-modern medicine context, um, is the degree to which pretty much everybody understood it to be an ascetic practice. Like nobody thought it was good for you. Um, everybody thought that it was bad for your health. Mm. Everybody thought that it would, a lot of people thought it would shorten your lifespan. Um, a lot of people, um, you know, thought it would, the according to traditional Tibetan medicine, um, the idea, if you don't eat a lot of meat, they sometimes say that uh, you'll end up with a wind disorder um, and you'll end up becoming, you're physically weaker, thinner, and kind of almost a little jittery. Um, and so people are becoming vegetarian, not because it's easy and not because they think it's healthy, um, but despite the fact that it's difficult and despite the fact that they think it's not good for them. Um, you know, there's one really striking story about a, uh, a very early master who was vegetarian and he's lying there dying uh, of old age. And the doctor says, well, you'll get better if you uh, eat or if you take a soup that contains um, dried yak lung as a medicine. And he says no and refuses and he dies. Um, and, you know, there's this real sense that being vegetarian was a difficult thing that people did. Yeah, not because it was like fun and happy, but because they felt like their like their sort of desire or need or compassion for uh, towards animals outweighed their own the discomfort and physical distress that this diet was going to cause them. Wow, that um, is that is so different than today. Yeah, it is. It's totally different than today, where. Uh, you know, I was just reading the other day an article that seemed to assume that everybody became vegetarian for health reasons. It was just sort of like, oh, interesting. Hmm. Um, okay, yeah. so how were these debates uh, across Tibetan history stratified? Like, were were like certain class, yeah. like social classes, religious lines? Yep. Like, who is for and who is against yep. vegetarianism in Tibetan society throughout the centuries? Yeah. Okay. So it's the records that we have are almost always records of elite practitioners. So these are the lamas, right? The, the high ups. Um, we have a, a lot, like a lot fewer um, records of what like day to day run of the mill monks might've thought or even lay people. Um, but there are definitely patterns across history. Um, like there was, it seems clear to me at least that there was a really strong vegetarian movement, um, say from the 13th through the 15th century. Um, and we have, you know, lots of prominent vegetarians. Uh, we have some places, uh, like Noor monastery, Sakya monastery, which may actually have legitimately institution instituted vegetarianism on a monastery wide scale. Like, so that all of the monks had to be vegetarian. Um, then uh, in the 15th century, that starts to wane. And, um, you know, it's, it's a complicated question of why, but I think that definitely part of it is the, um, the rise of the Geluk school of Tibetan Buddhism, and particularly uh, Kedrup Jay's writings on meat eating, um, which were more permissive than we had seen from a lot of previous authors um, and his opinions, I think kind of became the norm within the Giluk, which pretty quickly became one of the dominant schools of Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and so I think with that, we start to get a, a place where sort of vegetarianism fades uh, and a couple of centuries later, even at Noor, which like I just said, um, may once have been, um, fully vegetarian, we get people uh, criticizing the monks of Moor for um, going out and, uh, and slaughtering animals. Um, so it, it never quite, it never goes away, right? There are ongoing records of people being vegetarian after that, um, but it doesn't really pick up again, as far as I can tell, until the 19th century, um, where it really takes off in Eastern Tibet. And, um, it, it seems like it's become by su such a thing there that by the early 20th century, um, 
it was almost kind of like it was a choice that people made. It wasn't, again, it wasn't normative, but it seems like it was actually really common. And it was a pretty normal uh, choice for someone to make. People weren't going to flip out if you announced that you were vegetarian. Mm. Did did vegetarianism change at all based on who were prominent religious leaders at certain times or anything like that? You know, I I think we have to assume so. The the catch is we don't really have records. Like, you know, mostly what we have records of is what the prominent religious people said. And, you know, so we can sort of, I think we can assume that probably people listen to them. Um, but it's hard to say, like, it's hard to ask or to answer a question like, did this person have more impact than that person? Because it's like, we don't have, it would be great to have like a record from monasteries where they were like, you know, in 1512, we bought 30 yaks for food or something like that. Um, but at least I'm not aware of those records. Um, so it's hard to, it's really hard to get into the details of these kinds of questions. Sure. But I think that, yeah, the broad patterns at least are pretty, are pretty clear. Did you find any evidence of things like um, famines or shortages of anything that may have like driven people away from vegetarianism because like they just needed to, to survive? Yeah, not so much. Okay. Um, I think I have not seen a lot of that. Um, the thing that I think makes a couple of things, and I actually explore this more in the earlier book in uh, Food of Sinful Demons, but there are a couple of things that I think it definitely made people, drove people away from vegetarianism. Um, a big one being the, the health concerns that I mentioned earlier and the sense that being vegetarian was distinctly unhealthy. Um, but also just sort of the, the cultural place of meat in Tibetan culture beyond Buddhism, um, where meat really is a, uh, a, a food, a cultural touchstone. Um, and so giving it up then became, you know, it was a difficult thing for people to do. Um, or was perceived to be, a, I think, a really difficult thing for people to do. And so I think that there were some real headwinds that the sort of the vegetarian movement or whatever, if we want to call it that, um, was running into. And honestly, I think there's some parallels between those headwinds um, that it faced in Tibet and the kind of situation that it finds itself in today. Um, where a lot of people do assume that meat is necessary for health. And a lot of people in the U.S., I mean, assume that meat is necessary for health. And a lot of people also, it, it's very important uh, on cultural levels um, for a whole variety of different communities across uh, the U.S. And so I think that this is, uh, to come back to an earlier point, I think this is part of why I wanted to make this these texts available is so that people can look at and dissect and parse um, where there's similarities, where there's differences. And, you know, maybe there's something in the Tibetan, the Tibetan accounts of these, uh, of vegetarianism, that is actually useful for contemporary people who are wrestling with this. Who are some of the prominent historical figures in Tibetan Buddhism who wrote a lot about eating meat within a Tibetan context throughout the centuries? Like, who are some of your heavy hitter writers from throughout the years? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's a few who really stand out. Um, the first sort of heavy hitter, as you say, uh, is would be Shabkar. Um, he, he clearly wrote more about this than anybody else that I'm aware of. Um, but also other really important figures include several different members of the Karmapa lineage. And this is a – the Karmapas are an incarnation lineage um, in the Kagyu school. Um, and several of them, uh, were vegetarian. Several of them wrote about it. Um, and they occupied such an important position within the religious hierarchy that, you know, when they said stuff, people listened, um, and continued to, um, and the 17th Karmapa has been a strong advocate for, uh, vegetarianism among, in the contemporary world. So you just mentioned um, Shabkar as well. Yeah. 
And so he stood out to me in the book, and I'm glad you mentioned him. So he died in 1851, yeah. and you wrote in the book that yeah. he promoted vegetarianism relentlessly. So I'm just picturing this yeah. guy, like if he had the internet, like he would be out there like about right. talking about vegetarianism on, on Facebook all the time. Um, were these people yeah, I mean, into he, these ideas? Not, he, like he was clearly into this, yes. It, this was not the only thing he wrote about, um, right? And so it's, you know, his... You know, his collected works, I'm looking at, I've got a set of them here in my office, and um, they run to 14 volumes, I believe. Is it 14 or 13? Uh, 14 volumes. Um, and yeah, not all of that is about uh, vegetarianism, but he wrote several major works on vegetarianism and also clearly seems to have promoted it in sort of an ongoing fashion in his teachings. Um one of his last major works deals uh, heavily with vegetarianism, uh, among other topics. Um, and it just is clearly something that he comes back to. He also, his autobiography, uh, which is a wonderful read, translated by Mathieu Ricard, um, is, um, he, he gives us one of the, these sort of little bits of information that is actually really hard to come by, but it's a census of his students at the end of this text. And one of the things he says is that like of my 1500 students, 300 made the decision to become vegetarian, um, which is actually a pretty striking thing, which means that in his sort of, in his sphere of influence, 300 of his followers of his sort of like main followers, I guess we could say had become vegetarian. And so that tells us that at least at that time and place, it was not just, Shabkar, right, who would have been in a position to have, you know, lots of food and whatever he wanted, really. Um, you know, as this elite Lama, people would have been happy to give him whatever he asked for. Um, but also more ordinary members of uh, the religious community, people who clearly cared about Buddhism, um, but were not necessarily high level Lamas with access to fancy food and things like that so at least in that instance shabkar tells us that yeah vegetarianism again it was a thing that was floating around another teacher in the text that jumped out at me is the 18th century teacher jigme lingpa and he writes and this is a direct quote in the book he writes having now become animals your fathers mothers siblings and friends from previous lives tremble with fear in the butcher's sinful hands tears streaming from their eyes and panting for breath. So Jigme Lingpa called meat a sinful food. So considering the passage I just read and the use of the term sinful as a descriptor, can you tell me a little bit more about this passage of how people and loved ones become animals and why this is so important? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I, I, before I talk too much about it specifically, this it, is it's a little bit funny because um, those people people who've seen me speak um, know that I include this passage in about every talk that I give. Mm. Um, I just find it it's it's just a really striking passage that, in a lot of ways, encapsulates the entirety of um, sort of a lot of the main themes of Tibetan uh, attitudes towards animals and meat eating. Um, so I, I really, I love this passage. Um, but when you ask, like, so we, you start by asking about the sinful descriptor. Um, and you know, sinful is a loaded word. Um, I use it here, you know, knowing that and on purpose, uh, the Tibetan, Tibetan word that's being, I translate as sinful is, uh, dikpe. Um, and Really, what Jimmy Lipa is trying to say is that you know the this act right is a negative act, and what the butcher does is a negative thing, right? It's a bad action, um, and he's also clearly, and this is part of what makes it so interesting to me. He's clearly trying to produce an affective response in his audience, right? Like if we look at a lot of the earlier texts on vegetarianism, they approach it from a almost kind of legalistic standpoint, right? And they argue about the, the intricacies of the rule of threefold purity. They 
argue about like does this rule you know does the need for compassion outweigh threefold purity but the whole the whole tone of a lot of that, that writing is yeah really legalistic right they're like they're trying to figure out what does the buddha say and jingwei Lingpa just says like he just tells this story and it's this visceral affective story with the you know the animal has tears streaming from its eyes it's panting for breath this is not a sort of a legalistic account this is an attempt as far as i in my reading this is an attempt to get people to feel for the animal and to respond based on that emotional affective connection to the creature that's dying in front of them mm. um and so it really it not only is a beautiful passage, it also, Jimmy Limpa's writings, I think, also really mark kind of a transitional phase in the writings about uh, vegetarianism, going from the sort of legalistic to this more affective language. And then we see that, we see later writers come back to that over and over and over again. Um, the second thing you asked about there was um, this whole idea of having now become animals to your fathers, mothers, siblings, and friends from previous lives. And this this actually draws on something, a really key point for uh, a lot of Buddhists in their relationship with animals, that this idea that because of reincarnation, because we have all been reborn an essentially infinite number of times, at some point in the distant past, we were all related to each other, right? So we were all each other's parents, we were all each other's brothers, friends, so on and so forth. And so that means that the animal that's in front of you that you're considering eating was at some point in the past, your parent. And presumably when they were your parent, they were nice to you, right? They took care of you. They raised you. And so the suggestion is now you owe them some level of kindness because of as sort of repayment of their kindness to you. And this is something that actually comes up throughout this the literature on uh, vegetarianism and um, and animals and the question of animals. It actually, it's so prominent, it shows up in a couple of titles in um, like one of a text that did not make it into, um, into this book by uh, the eighth Karmapa, um, which says uh, the title of the text is a letter on the unsuitability of eating the meat of our old mothers. Hmm. Right. So just in the title, there's this allusion to the idea that um, the animal you eat now used to be your mother. Wow. Okay. Um, there's a lot of passages that seem to include things like entrails and grease and cracked ribs. Like, did you yeah. read through a lot of extremely graphic writing <laughs> in order to put this together? I think I included most of the graphic stuff. Okay. Um, but um, no, the, I, I the the grease and the cracked ribs. I think you're uh, thinking about Patrol, um, and Patrol Rinpoche again. He he follows Jigme Lingpa in this in writing these sort of affective um, presentations of the impact of eating meat, and really just trying to sort of to not argue on sort of the nicer, the fine points of doctrine, but to really just be like, look and feel what you're doing and what you're causing to happen. Right. And then act accordingly. Yeah. Well, and there's also the idea of not getting away scot-free after, you mm -hmm. know, ignoring Definitely. the advice of like, of eating meat forever. Yeah. Like there's something that awaits you. So chapter nine, yeah. there's a dream yeah. sequence that you, that is in, in your book about what awaits meat eaters in hell yeah. can you tell us a little yeah. bit about that story absolutely um i mean this is a this is a, a text written by uh nyala pemadoodle a 19th century um uh master from eastern tibet and yeah what he it, he presents his text and this is what's really makes this particular text um so interesting and, and so beautiful is it's a dream sequence and he um, it says that he sort of, he, he kind of, he wakes up or I don't know if dream is even the right word, almost kind of visionary experience, um, where he goes off and finds himself sort of as a tourist in hell. And he's looking at these people who are suffering these really profound, um, really profound, uh, punishments, um, 
And you know, I'm sort of looking at the text right now, and so I, if you don't mind, I'll just read a passage. Yeah, please. Um, so he's in the reviving Helen. One of its quarters, he says, uh, was filled with men and women, naked and helpless, before each of whom stood throngs of evil-looking servants with head, heads like birds, wild and domesticated animals, and ferocious beasts. Many of the servants held sharp weapons in their hands with which to slice apart and devour the flesh of their victims. Time and again they cut, and time and again the flesh grew back. Victims did not expire until their karma was fully exhausted. Right? So he's in, he's having this vision of hell, and in it he sees these people being tortured by animal-headed demons, where their bodies are being sliced up and cut to bits. And he's sitting there going, thinking, okay, what did they have to do to end up in this kind of a horrible situation? And all of a sudden, Avalokiteshvara appears. And Avalokiteshvara is uh, the bodhisattva of compassion. And um, so, uh, you know, we would say one of the principal deities uh, in Tibetan Buddhism. And he explains to Nyala Pemadurul that these people are there because they had eaten meat in their past lives. And... The result of that, the karmic result, is that they are now being sliced up by these animal-headed demons. And from a karmic standpoint, this makes a lot of sense because one of the things that they, one of the sort of assertions that karma, the law of karma makes is that like follows like. And so if you do a particular bad thing, like chop up lots of animals in this life, or be the cause of chopping up lots of animals by eating meat, then you're likely in the, your next life to be chopped up by animals, Right, the sort of the the sense of kind of almost like turnabout is fair play, hmm. uh, and so Nyala Pemadudo presents this. You know, he writes it up later, right? He writes up this experience and presents it to his followers as a real warning, right? The sense of like it's not just about you know doing what's best for the animals, but this is what's best for you too, right? If you don't do this, if you continue in to follow these sort of um, negative commit these negative acts you'll have a hard you'll have a hard place you'll be in a, a difficult place and you'll have to answer answer for that um i mean it's notable that at the end of this uh at the end of this uh passage nella pemodudal himself says you know like he says okay i'm gonna take a vow i was not uh am not sorry okay we're gonna cut that out okay let me write that down um, 58 yeah. okay Go ahead. Missed the quote. Okay, so it's notable that at the end of this passage, right, at the end of this text, Nyala Pemadudal himself says, I will not ever eat meat again. He says, henceforth, may the thought of eating meat never even cross my mind, right? So he's presenting this as something that had a real impact on him, and i presumably hoping that his story of it will have an impact on his students. Hmm. Okay. There's also, you know, another idea that I, I couldn't help but um, take a second and third and fourth and fifth look at, and that is right. the Tantra Samayas. Mm -hmm. um, and I've never really talked a ton about uh, Tantra in this on this show before, mm -hmm. and it's something that's kind of like a mystery area to me in my own studies, and right. I'm curious about it. So the Tantra Samayas yeah. uh, require practitioners to consume meat in Tibetan Buddhism as part of a ritual feast offering, and right. the the list of meats caught my eye. Uh, yeah. I'm also curious uh, about... Yeah, and like I'm also curious, like what the feasts are about, uh, when yep. Tibetans would be encouraged to eat these meats, and what's up with yep. the list of meats. Yep. Okay. So the so tantra is um, obviously a somewhat controversial collection of practices, both uh, outside of Buddhism, but also within Buddhism, um, and but part at least part of Tantra and, and Tantra also has just a ton of different kinds of practices, a ton of different kinds of um, ideas and people are encouraged to do different things. So, you know, we're only talking about a small, I want to make clear, we're only talking about a small piece of it here. Um, but part of what is sometimes encouraged in Tantric practice is to sort of, to consciously reject cultural norms and the goal then is, 
that this is a practice done as part of a mental transformation to really so that the practitioner comes to see like so the practitioner comes to see that everything is fundamentally empty right and so this comes back to sort of foundational concepts in buddhist philosophy of emptiness of uh, insubstantiality and so on and so forth and the implication is that our sort of our okay i'm going to start over again it's fine so um let me pick up if you can you Finish up the question, and then I'll start again there. Um, how did how did I say it? Do you want me to talk about like? Um, you said, yeah, you were you wanted to talk about the tantric samayas, um, and I don't remember exactly what you said. Okay, hold on a second. But I'm feeling like I lost the thread there. Oh, it's and fine. So something. Since we are, so something that jumped out at me as well is the Tantra Samayas. And these are something that I have very little familiarity with in my own knowledge. And it caught my eye because of the list of meats that are used within a ritual feast offering. And so since we're talking about vegetarianism, uh, it's interesting to talk about ways that meat is sometimes encouraged and feast offerings may do that. Is there um, anything that you can tell us about, like this very fascinating um, feast ritual and what the meats are and how often this would happen and things like that? Because it really caught my eye. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. This is definitely one of the most sort of interesting and really fascinating aspects of of this whole discussion. Um, Before talking specifically about the feast offerings, I feel like I should step back a little bit and talk about Tantra itself. Um, because Tantra is often, I think, um, misunderstood, um, by contemporary audiences. Um, and it's also, it's a really varied thing. So there's, uh, there are a lot of different types of tantric practice. There are a lot of different specific practices that are advocated. And so what we're talking about here is really only a piece of tantric practice, um, but one of the things that does show, show up in some forms of Tantra is the idea that practitioners should consciously reject the norms of society. And the justification for that uh, lies in this idea that fundamentally everything is actually empty and that the, the meaning that, and the sort of the, the values that we have are actually social. Uh, socially constructed values. Um, and so there's a sense within this these tantric practices that sometimes going against those socially constructed values can actually be a really powerful way of of training your mind to see the whole world as uh, empty and as the and that to see the whole world as in some ways uh, socially constructed. Um, and so, the idea here with the feast offering is that there's a particular Buddhist deity, the, uh, a collection of people will get together to offer a feast to that deity. And it's usually framed as an offering. Um, but and then in part of, as part of the ritual, the practitioners will also consume some of the offering. And it's usually said that the five meats need to be included in that offering. Um, and as you picked up, those are a pretty striking uh, <laughs> list of meats. Yeah. They, uh, they vary sometimes, so you get slightly different lists, uh, but it always includes human. Uh, it always includes dog, horse, um, elephant usually, and always includes cow. Okay, so it always includes beef. And the thing that all of these meats have in common is that in ancient India, where the Tantras originated, they were deeply taboo, right? Like, you don't eat people. You don't eat dog. You don't eat you know, elephant. You don't eat cow, right? Because this is coming out of a culture in which cows were venerated. So you don't eat beef. And so when practitioners would consume just even just a little bit of these substances, they're really, they're doing something that the culture says is not okay, right? And they're doing it on purpose in order to, essentially, I mean, essentially as a training in order to 
demonstrate to themselves and, you know, also, I suppose, to anybody watching that they recognize that those taboos are cultural constructs rather than something intrinsic to the substance itself. Mm. So they're, they're saying, look, this human flesh is no different than any other food, right? We only happen, we think it's different, but that difference is only in our mind. And so by eating it, I'm saying, you know what? I'm transcending these cultural norms. I'm transcending this sort of mistaken perception of the world. And so in that context, it's said that doing practices like this can be a really powerful and very effective way of um, moving towards ultimately enlightenment. Um, the catch, at least in the Tibetan context, um, is that sometimes this sort of permissibility or the, the fact that people were encouraged to eat the five meats was then taken by people, other people to be like, well, then I should just eat meat all the time every day. Um, and so one of the things that we see in a lot of these texts is a concern that eating the five meats not turn into just eating them for fun. Right. And so you get people arguing really strongly that, look, yes, you have to have this. You have to eat these when you perform this ritual, but it's only these. It's not yak. It's not sheep. Right. It's not the, the meat that was normal for a Tibetan to eat. And it's only done in the ritual. Okay. Patrul Rinpoche um, has a short passage that where he says, look, if you eat the five meats out in the village just because you like the taste, then you're actually violating the same tantric samayas, the same tantric vows that require you to eat them in sok, in the, in the ritual feast, in the first place. So there's a concern on the part of many of these authors that this sort of the specific permission or the specific requirement to eat meat within this tantric context not then be read as license to just eat it all the time. Mm. I would definitely encourage anybody who found that fascinating to read the section of the book where that's in because it really captured my eyes. So thank you for that additional explanation. That was really yeah, cool. Definitely. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the Tibetan practice of vegetarianism today? Is this like a country where it's like huge percentages of the population practice this or is this still kind of like a marginal practice like it is here? Uh, it's somewhere in between. Um, I would say it's uh, less marginal than it is in the U.S. Uh, at this point, um, there's also we have to recognize that there are different Tibetan communities today. There are Tibetans who live in Tibet. There are uh, Tibetans who live in India, Nepal, in exile. Um, and it, also within Tibet, there are different communities that have sometimes uh, very different norms. Um, where I've done most of my field work is in eastern Tibet, a uh, region known as Kham. And there it's actually surprisingly common these days for people to be vegetarian. Um, and I, I often tell the story that when I first went to uh, Kham in 2007, I visited uh, Dzogchen Monastery and uh, I stayed a little bit with the monks at the Sri Singha uh, Monastic College. And they had they ate um, their food together communally from three. They had these three big vats of soup that cooked lunch. Two of them had meat, and one of them was vegetarian. Um, by the time I went back five years later in 2012, all of them were vegetarian, and meat was straight up banned from anywhere within the monastery precincts. Um, and so the the sort of the rise of the vegetarian movement in Tibet in contemporary Tibet, the strength of it really is a fairly recent phenomenon. And one of the interesting things, or one of the things that to watch, is as this movement matures, as people, you know, sort of as the sort of the enthusiasm of this first wave of yes, we're all going to be vegetarian, starts to fade. Um, how strong? How like? how much will the movement be, how much will the movement continue, right? What kind of legs will it have? Um, and so each time I go back to the area, I'm always sort of looking to see 
uh, if things are changing. And I definitely think at this point that, yeah, that's sort of the first flush of excitement has worn off. But I'm also still seeing a lot of people who are vegetarian. And I'm seeing when I see people like in a restaurant order vegetarian food, the other thing that I notice is that I don't tend to see people be surprised about it. Mm. So, you know, one person goes into a restaurant, you know, orders the veg, the veg noodles, um, and nobody bats an eye. It's just a normal piece of life, right? Mm. Um, and so I, I've never, I haven't been able to do um, like statistical analysis uh, for a variety of reasons, um, but the movement is quite is widespread and it's becoming fairly normal. Um, my sense is that in northeastern Tibet, in Amdo, um, it is not nearly as strong. That's mostly anecdotal. What I've heard from other people. Um, but also then in Lhasa, in central Tibet, uh, when I was there a couple of years ago, I noticed a lot of vegetarian restaurants. And so, um, you know, these are restaurants that don't just have a vegetarian option, but where the whole restaurant is veg. Um, and so I think it, it varies a lot by region. Um, and then the exile community is another question. But clearly, this is something that is happening. It has legs. It's not just a flash in the pan that's going to disappear. Um, and it'll be really interesting to see how it develops over the next couple of decades. Awesome. So you mentioned that you, in this volume, um, the faults of meats from wisdom that you cut a lot of, you know, pieces. Mm -hmm. Um, what's, uh, do you think you could ever see yourself doing a second volume of this? You know, um, <laughs> myself, probably not. Um, there is a lot of work that goes into this. And I think honestly that we, we, came up with a really a good cross section of um of textual sources so what right? uh, that so what is next for you um i've got a couple of projects uh going on on the on the animal side on the vegetarian side um i'm trying to think about ways to introduce some of these ideas that we're seeing here more directly into the philosophical debates surrounding vegetarianism right now um so trying to move not just sort of within the world of Tibetan studies, um, not just within the world of, um, you know, people who are interested in Buddhism and animals, but also into the world, into the world of people who are interested in just animals, right. Or who are interested in animal ethics, vegetarianism, and trying to kind of get, um, some of these ideas, which I think are, you know, interesting, but also really pertinent, and that I think gives some new perspectives on, um, on some of the standard questions, right? You know, the moral standing of animals, the, um, the question of should people be vegetarian or not. And I think that there are some new perspectives in here that um, could really impact these broader discussions. And so that's what I'm uh, really working on at the moment. Um, on that side, I've also have a whole new project going on that um, uh, looks at the practice of guru devotion. And so that's a whole other thing. It's still very much in the early research stages. Um, but that's also coming down the pipeline. Awesome. Well, Dr. Jeff Barstow, um, author and editor of The Fault of Meats, Tibetan Buddhist Writings and Vegetarianism, out from Wisdom Publications. I'm super grateful to you for your hour today. Um, I know you're yeah. super busy and have a million things going on. Can you uh, guide listeners to where they may find you if they want to follow you and your work? Yeah, sure. I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram. Uh, it's at the lost yak. Uh, that's also, uh, the URL for, uh, my homepage, uh, my website. So people are welcome to come and connect with me there. Um, I try to keep particularly on Twitter fairly active. So you definitely, um, come hang out with me there. Awesome. Well, Dr. Jeffrey Barstow, thank you so much for coming on okay. classical ideas. It's been a real pleasure and, yeah, uh, everybody check been. out the book. All right. We'll do. Thank you very much. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, 
or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas@outlook.com, or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening.